Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you created the world very good, and yet in our sin and wickedness we have rebelled against you again and again. Help us to be mindful of this and turn to Christ, that in his goodness we would know your redemption for us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. So, one of uh, Julie and mine's favorite shows to watch is Psych. If you haven't seen it, it's not actually about a psychic. It's kind of about a fraud now that I think about it, but... Um, it's about this guy that is just super duper observant, and so he pretends to be a psychic so that he can help the local police department solve crimes. And his name is Sean, and his best friend's name is Gus. So one of, in one of the episodes, Gus's boss is murdered, and of course, right before Gus's boss is murdered, Gus tells his boss exactly where he can go, and it's not a very pleasant place to go, and then writes a letter about how awful he is and that he's quitting, and Gus, of course, then immediately regrets this, goes back to try and get the letter back, and finds that his boss has been murdered. Now, unlike, well, probably we would all freak out in that situation, so I guess I won't say unlike, but in this case, Gus's boss, or in this case, Gus tries to get the letter back, which is clamped in his boss's hand, knocks his boss over, knocks a whole bunch of things over, and then, of course, like anybody would do, they goes and gets his best friend for help to try and figure out what what to do next. Of course, then that, what follows after that is Sean somehow makes it even worse than Gus had initially made it. And then it just keeps spiraling out of control until finally they end up tying up the coroner so that the coroner doesn't tell everybody what happened. Sin is often a lot like this. Of course, not nearly as funny as that example. It's, it's much more destructive, right? But sin is often like this. It it starts out as a small thing, like you're a terrible boss, and then it just spirals out of control into this awful thing that that wrecks lives and and ruins things. And this is is true of culture. We see this this morning in the sixth chapter of Genesis. But it's true of of culture when we lose our moral compass. But it's also true of individuals, and that's probably where we want to think most critically about this doesn't mean that you're going to go murder somebody or something like that if you have unchecked sin. But it might mean that you have unchecked pride that just overrules. And so if somebody says, hey, you might want to work on this thing or that thing, you just think, well, you're an idiot. Or something along that lines. Or you have unchecked cynicism where just nothing is right. Everything just is, is, is bleak and sorrowful. And no matter what, it could be a beautiful sunny day like this morning, but, you know, it's a little hot or some other sin that just ends up ruling you and becomes an untamable, untamable beast in your heart. <clears throat> and this is what we stumble upon this morning in chapter 6 of Genesis as we continue working along. We skip over chapter 4, and, and chapter 5 is, is interesting if you're bored and want to do math. We were, George and Ty and I were doing math this past week, and I don't think George actually appreciated being on that text conversation, but... That's okay. It was good for his soul. But <clears throat> it, it, it makes for some interesting math if you're bored, but it not, not great preaching. And we also skipped over chapter 4. But in chapter 4, remember what happens there. Um, Cain murders Abel, but then it just expands in chapter 6. 
chapter 6 becomes all-encompassing. It's not just two brothers fighting and one murdering the other. The whole world is called wicked by Scripture. Something has become so bad in the, in the thousand to 15, 1,600 years or so since the creation of the world that God looks at the world and thinks, what wickedness has overruled? And so in verse 7, God says that he will put his judgment upon the earth. And it's not just upon man, although that's part of it. It's upon humanity. But it's also upon nature. And this is interesting, right? He's, he's judging man, and, and we kind of always focus on that. But I want to think a little bit about his judgment upon all of creation. Because we don't often think about the fact that sin, our sin, affects not only ourselves, those that we love, our community, our sin affects creation itself. And so that's how, so, so, so creation is no longer the beautiful good thing that it is. There's still in the center of it, the goodness of God's creation. But all of nature has fallen along with us and we see hints of it. We saw hints of it in chapter three and again today when, when God says that he's going to judge the nature. But then we also see hints of it from St. Paul where he talks about how all of nature groans for the coming of Christ, for the renewing that will come when Christ returns. And so then in this judgment, as we read it in verse 7, I will blot out man and whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorrowful that I have made them. Now, if you're more observant than I am, or at least have a better memory than I do, I think this morning I walked back to my office about five times, and I tried to blame other things, but Daniel told me I was just the fact that I was forgetful. So that's probably the most accurate thing. But if you have a better memory than I do, you might have noticed something in this little, little narrative here that we just read. And it's that creation has been reversed. As he's saying this, he's going to, to judge the earth in the reverse order that he created it. In other words, he's about to undo creation. But there's hope because he finds Noah. Because Noah finds favor in the Lord's eyes. And if you remember back a few weeks ago, for those of you who are here, we talked about when this word, the generations of, pops up throughout, um, throughout Genesis. And the generations, so, so we get another one of these, these are the generations of. And it starts like the next chapter, if you will. So we're finishing, we finish the first chapter of Genesis, although it's technically halfway through the sixth chapter. We finish the first chapter of Genesis with this undoing of creation, but then a glimmer of hope. And so it's like the cliffhanger at the end of a chapter that keeps you reading um, and, and, and makes you not want to stop. But wait, there's hope. Noah finds favor, and we find out about this man, Noah, in the next chapter. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, <clears throat> we might be wondering, well, what makes Noah righteous and blameless? And I think it's what Noah's desire is, right? The whole world, we get this really bleak picture. It's kind of like... You know, if you watch like a really bleak version of Batman or something and everything is just dark and they even film it like really dark. So you get this kind of grim, deep inner feeling of something evil is going on. But there's this man who walks with God. And I think that's the key 
to understanding of how he is righteous and blameless. His desire isn't to dive into the darkness. His desire isn't for the wickedness that's surrounding him. But his desire is for God. And so that, that tells us about Noah's righteousness and blamelessness. It's what he desired. He desired to walk with God. When everybody else in the world had turned their back on God. And so there's, there's two little take-homes from this little part here. The first is, when we were talking about those sins that can overcome us, did you want to cling to your pride or your cynicism or whatever, whatever sin you might be struggling with? Or did you think, like what Peter said this morning, oh, that's a sin that I do struggle with. I should throw myself before the holy and good Lord. I should throw myself into Christ and have his forgiveness. What is it that you desire? Do you desire to preserve that sin? Or do you desire to extinguish it, to let Christ tame it? But the other thing is, is when you do desire Christ, and that is your chief desire, and everybody else around you seems to desire something else, power, fame, money, riches, or whatever, be like Noah and stand firm. Stand faithful to God. Stand faithful to Christ. But just because God has found that there is one righteous man remaining doesn't mean that he's going to spare the judgment. But instead, judgment comes in the form of a flood. He tells Noah about this. He tells him judgment is going to come, and then he describes the ark, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then he says, it's going to be a flood, and I'm going to wipe out everything. <clears throat> now, before we kind of talk a little more about this flood, perhaps you've heard some popular, popular depictions of this. And you've heard about this, this epic of Gilgamesh, and you think, well, well, maybe, 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 just maybe, when Moses writes out this whole account, he's actually just ripping off this flood narrative from this epic of Gilgamesh. And there's a few problems here. First and foremost... The judgment, or, or really just the slaughtering of humanity in the Epic of Gilgamesh, because it's not really a judgment, isn't because the good creation of the gods, in, in the case of the Epic Gilgamesh, has been corrupted by humanity. It's because in that epic, the gods are just really annoyed because we're loud. They're just like, we're tired of listening to you. We're just going to get rid of you. And they save this one guy for some reason. I, I honestly can't remember why, but I don't think there was any good reason, except maybe he just figured it out. So there's a big difference there between, I'm annoyed, so I'm just going to be like, go away, I'm going to get rid of you, and God being grieved over the fact that his good creation has been soiled. And that's really, when we read about it in the beginning, when, in the beginning of the lesson, when we read that God was grieved, that he, he regretted, we don't want to imagine God being up there being like, oh man, I'm so surprised that this is how it turned out. That's... It's not what's going on here. It's just the best way that Moses could figure out to explain to us what was going on for God. It's much more akin, as one of the people in the, in the staff Bible study mentioned, it's much more akin to being sad when your child does something foolish. To being sad when your child just goes off the deep end and you, you feel heartbreak for them. It's this element of heartbreak and sorrow because humanity had taken God's very good creation and sullied it 
with wickedness. And there's a big gap between that and just being like, you guys are annoying and you're kind of interrupting our sleep and our partying. So, but then there's a second difference. And this one's just kind of a fun fact. Gilgamesh's ark or boat, if you will, would have been a giant cube. And if you haven't seen a giant cube floating on the water, it's not exactly the most seaworthy of things compared to Noah's ark or the ark which God tells Noah to build. So I think in my best estimation, at least, perhaps, perhaps, the way we can read these two together is that it's just a shared memory of a traumatic event. But now you might be thinking, well, okay, if it's a shared memory of the traumatic event, which do we believe? If you're a Christian, you believe the one from, from Moses, Moses wrote, the one that we read this morning, because you confess and believe the word of God is inerrant or at least infallible. In other words, that it has no errors in it, that it can be trusted. But if you're a non-Christian or you struggle with doubt, as sometimes people do, both, both, both were written somewhere between 3,200 years ago and 4,000 years, just depending on the dating of the Epic of Gilgamesh. We have a fair amount of confidence that Genesis was probably written about 3,500 years ago, with the exception of perhaps a few odd people who have started cults and all of that, nobody worships the Mesopotamian gods anymore. They're dead. They're gone. The only reason we know about them is because we have things like the epic, epic of Gilgamesh. They've died from our memories. But today, alone, billions of people around, or billion people around the world are worshiping the God of the Bible. He has been worshipped for over 3,500 years. That's amazing. So if you want to make a bet on which story to believe, I think the one we read this morning, the story in Genesis, is the accurate one. Now, we get to God's design for salvation. He tells Moses, tells Noah, there I did it again, he tells Noah to build an ark. Now, if you're trying to imagine these, we have an actually a fairly good comparison to make in our modern world just because Russia decided it'd be a good idea to invade Ukraine, and suddenly we realize there's these absurd things called mega yachts in the world. Now, if you're bored like I get bored sometimes and you've Googled what these things look like, they don't actually look like the ark, but their size is about the same as what the ark would have been. And so that gives you a good size comparison. Some of them are like 100 feet bigger and some are 100 feet shorter. But still, these big little floating towns on the water is roughly what the ark would have been. Now, the other part of it that's kind of interesting is we don't really know what gopher wood is. There's no such thing today as gopher wood. And there's a few possibilities that this can be. First, it could be a wood that got destroyed in the, in the flood or just went extinct since the flood. It could be a pitchy wood that they, they missed road or something along that lines, like cypress or something else. But the point of the gopher wood isn't so that we can go and scratch our heads and be like, I wonder what gopher wood is. Maybe I should like try and crossbreed a gopher in a pine tree or something. It won't work, by the way. <clears throat> the point is, God gave Noah a design for an ark that was imminently seaworthy, that would sustain what was about to come. 
God gave Noah salvation. Now, as we read on, this is the first time that flooding is mentioned in Scripture, and rain is implied, and later in chapter 7, which we're going to have to skip over as well, it's the first time that rain is mentioned as happening in Scripture. That doesn't mean that it didn't rain or it didn't flood, but if we're looking at Genesis as a story, as as a narrative, it's very intentional. It's implying that what is about to happen, this judgment and salvation that God is providing is a new type of judgment and it is a new type of salvation. God is doing a new thing to restore the earth. Now, it's also a precursor or a symbolism of something else that is about to happen. And that is our baptism. Not about to happen, but will happen. And that is our baptism. Part of the baptismal symbolism is that when we are baptized, we are buried with Christ. And then when we are come out of the water, we are raised with Christ. Now, for those of you who haven't been here for a baptism, we, of course, don't have a big tub like our brothers and sisters in the Baptist church do, but we just have the little font. And so you kind of miss that symbolism if you're not listening too closely. But that's part of the baptism rite. And we pray as we baptize somebody We humbly beseech thee to grant that he or she, being dead unto sin, may live unto righteousness, and that being buried with Christ, with Christ in his death, may also be partakers of his resurrection. So what we see in Genesis here in chapter 6, 7, and 8 is that the earth is about to be buried in water, and then God will raise it into a new, semi-new creation. God will bury the earth and raise it to new life, just as you and I were buried in our baptism and are raised to new life in Christ. And so God saves the earth through one man. And so we're seeing another foreshadowing here, aren't we? God saves the earth through one man, Noah. And likewise, God is saving the earth today through one man. Christ, his son, our Lord. And this finally points us to one final thing, and that is the end of all things. Points us to the end of all things because ultimately, earth will be renewed and remade perfectly to what was lost in the fall. And Revelation, the end of Revelation, kind of reflects this. There's a judgment with a lake of fire with the wicked are cast away into. The righteous who are in Christ are preserved from that second death and they enter into the new Jerusalem. And in this final thing, the earth is recreated perfectly. So much like what we read this morning, earth is wiped out, renewed, but renewed perfectly. And so we see a foreshadowing of what has happened in Christ and what is to come in Noah's obedience. And that is the world's salvation. Noah is given clear instructions and he is obedient. He is given clear instructions even to the point that he's to take enough food that he and his family and the animals that they save will have enough until the earth, the water resides. Resides? Is that the right word? 
Recedes, thank you. <laughs> Subsides, I combined the two, I guess. <clears throat> if additionally, Noah does what he's told. And because of that, not only Noah is saved, but Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives are all saved along with the animals and the earth. So ultimately, it points us forward. It points us to where our salvation comes through Christ's obedience, who is obedient even to the death on the cross. It is a thing of pure grace. We, like Noah's sons or his, the animals, do nothing, but we follow Christ and are saved through him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.